Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Burlington Clearance, Golden Eagle 53, Mike Juliet. We'd like to pick up our instrument clearance to White Plains. Golden Eagle 53, Mike Juliet is cleared to the Westchester County Airport. Expect radar vectors to Albany. Victor 123 to Carmel, direct. Climb and maintain 10,000. Expect 16,000 10 minutes after departure. Departure frequency 132.3. Squawk 2422. 53 Mike Juliet is cleared to the Westchester County Airport. Expect radar vectors to Albany. Victor 123, Carmel Direct. Climb and maintain 10,000. Expect 16,000 10 minutes after departure. Departure 132.3 and squawk 2422. 53 Mike Juliet, read back correct. Contact ground when you're ready to push. 53 Mike Juliet, Roger. And with that, let me introduce you to my friend Ken Dravis. Ken and I met in 1991 when we were both working for Hill Associates, the telecom consultancy that took me and my family to Vermont that year, and where we've been ever since. I was a writer and instructor for the company, but Ken had a very different role. He was our corporate pilot. Somewhere along the way, because we had instructors on the road all the time in lots of different cities, the founders of the company decided that it would be a great idea to have a company plane. So they bought one. It was a Cessna 421 Golden Eagle, a pressurized twin-engine turboprop that carried a half-dozen passengers or so. It was great, but because we had a plane, we needed a pilot, and that's where Ken came in. Now, you know that I like to talk with people on this program who have had nonlinear careers. Well, Ken is the epitome of that, but there's a lot more to him than just flying airplanes. Steve, I'll tell you right off the bat, I met a guy when I was 18 And he lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I was traveling through Florida at the time. And and he and his wife lived in Winston-Salem, and he told me, hey, if you ever come through the area, just drop by. And I said, well, don't say it if you don't mean it, because my brother was getting married in a couple of months, and I was going to go through Winston-Salem. So I stopped, and I spent the night there. And in conversation, I said, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, where have you worked? What, What do you do? He said, I've worked for, I think it was GE for 38 years. I'm like, wow, you know, you must love it. And he said, I hate it. And I was dumbfounded then as I'm dumbfounded now. I'm like, what do you, why would you stay? He said, they had a great retirement program. And that was a lesson, Steve, that I've never forgotten. Here's a man that spends his life at a job that he told me he didn't like only because they had a great retirement program. And that was really one of the defining moments in my life was never to live that way. That's just not me. So life has been a trip. It's, it's been an adventure and uh, full of curiosity. And somewhere along the way, you became a musician and a good one. You've produced your own albums and you built a world-class production studio out in Colorado and worked with some great musicians. 
But there's more to that story, including some very personal inspiration from a superstar in the music industry. Tell me about the beginnings of your passion for music. I'm from uh, Warren Township, New Jersey, and my stepdad, I've always refer to him as my dad, uh, the older I become, the more of a, of a genius I realize he was, and the more I appreciate him for sure and miss him a lot. He could fix about anything, and he was a tool and die maker, and he was a person full of curiosity. He was a self-made businessman and very successful at that, but he was a real thinker. He didn't say a lot, but I could tell when he was thinking. So, and a lot of that of who he was has rubbed off on me, I, I, I know. So early on, my background was as a machinist, kind of following in his footsteps. But at around the age seven, he started to teach me guitar. And we would sit for hours and play for, for guests that would come by the house and whatnot. But he also had a sound-on-sound sound tape recorder. And you have to remember, this is like 1963, 64, and multi-track recording is totally in its infancy at that time. So I was really amazed at that time that he would play his guitar and record a track, rewind it, play another track on top, and now there's two guitars. And it was like unbelievable. And it really sparked a real interest in that technical side of music. So not only playing music, but how, how does this thing work? You know, how cool is this? So he saw that I was really interested in it. And though he didn't want me to use his tape recorder because it was an Ampex, it was probably pretty expensive. He bought me a, a lesser expensive, a TAC sound on sound or sound with sound recorder. And I plumb wore that thing out. So I was very curious about with that machine, you could record a track, a second track, dump those two onto one track, and then add a third. So it was a little bit more advanced than what he had. But that was my curiosity with tape decks and, and analog recording at that time. When I was 16, I was searching for some music that I felt fit me. My older brother was listening to stuff a little too heavy for me. My parents listened to a little too old-fashioned for me. And I heard Annie's song on the radio. And I went, oh, who's that? So I went to a record store and asked for the new uh, Bob Denver album. And uh, seriously, they, the guy at the store said, no, Gillingham doesn't have a record. But John Denver is a new guy. And yeah, he's got this record. So it's called Back Home Again. And best I could, I learned to play all those songs. So let's see, between my junior and senior year, I was 17. I had my driver's license from New Jersey. I drove out to Colorado, just check it out, see what it was all about. I spent two weeks out there and came home and gave my folks a year's notice. Because as soon as school was over, I was out of New Jersey. In the meantime, I was working as a machinist and, uh, you know, gave my notice there, but moved to Colorado as soon as I was, well, I was 18 at that time. And John Denver was a, a huge push for me to do that. So that opens up a whole new world f for me. So that's kind of a nutshell, I don't know, early music. And somewhere along the way, flying caught your attention. When did that happen? So at 17, I went to Colorado, moved there the following year, and I moved to Colorado Springs and started working as a single and uh, with a band. But I wanted to be further in the mountains. So I moved to Glenwood Springs, Colorado. You have to remember, this is now 1977. Colorado then is a whole different place than it is now. Very quiet, 
very few people. The highways were not congested. And if anyone's been to Denver lately, they, they know that's total congestion out there anymore. And I, I just love being there and in the mountains. And I found that there, there were not a lot of music opportunities and to make the most money in the valley. And I don't know if you knew this or not. I applied at Snowmass Coal Company to be a coal miner. So while that was in, and there was a waiting line because that was the most money you could make in the valley. And so they needed to wait till there was an opening. I went to work at a gravel pit on a rock crusher. And the machine that I had took the raw earth and went through this machine. So it took a real beating. And one day it broke down and the manager said, it's going to be really broken. Can you drive a dump truck? And I'm 19. What can't I do, right? So they said, they're building a new road in Starwood and Aspen. Ah, and I go, ding, there's a song that John Denver sings. It's in about his home in Starwood and Aspen. Yeah, so I drove this dump truck up to Starwood, and there's security gate there. And, you know, say what your purpose is there and how long you're going to be there, etc. Well, I'm just up here to drop off some gravel. And the security guard's name was Roy Griffith. He was a, a real cowboy as well. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but I learned to really respect and love this guy. We became very good friends, actually. So I got a call from the, the coal company, and they said they would take me on. So I started working as a coal miner. And the job I wound up with was running the train underground. So where they're cutting coal, and then we needed to move it a mile away to a, a chute that we dump the coal, and the coal would find its way out on a conveyor belt. I did this run one evening, and we were getting coal out like crazy, and I was told to put on another coal car, which was against regulation, and then go get another one because we're getting so much coal out, we're making bonus money here. So I do that. I now have five coal cars, which is beyond what we're supposed to be doing, and I wound up on a runaway train. I mean, I just realized it was not going to stop, and I wound up bailing off this coal train, and it just somehow just missed me. And... uh turned every which ways and upside down. And it was a real mess. Unfortunately, nobody got hurt, which is amazing. They, they shut that mine down and I went to work in another one just for one night, but the roof bolts were so close to my head. Uh, it was a good way to become decapitated. So I worked there one night and said, I'm done. But on my days off, I was still going up to see Roy at Starward Security and uh, I think Roy was afraid to go underground, but he had a lot of questions about it, I remember. So this is where the nonlinearity of your life kind of comes in and strongly, right? Your curiosity led to passion, which led to the path that you ultimately took. But you didn't plan your career any more than I did. Right at the time. I mean, my whole life seems to just falls into place this way, that just as the, the mining job ended and I was up seeing Roy, he said, we, we need a new guard up here. Would you be interested in working here? I knew John lived there. and like, well, sure. And he said, well, if you can hang out for a little bit, John is in town, he and Annie, and they'll be back shortly. If you want to meet him, uh, I'll introduce you. I said, yeah, it's, you know, it's noon. I can wait till, you know, next Saturday. Sure. So John and Annie came through and Roy went over and talked to him for a little bit. Then he waved me over and he introduced me to John. I just keep kind of falling into these things. I, I did start working for Starwood Security. To make it easy, I say I worked for John. And the reason for that is there's 59 houses in Starwood and nobody else wanted security. It was only there for John's benefit. So John paid, I understand, like 95% of our salary. So I got to know John and I asked to work the graveyard shift because at night, if John were in town, 
he would come in typically after midnight. I don't think that's a big secret. John liked to, uh, to visit the pubs in, in Aspen. So I would see John in the evenings and, and sometimes he'd just wave and go on by, but there are a number of times where he, he stopped and we'd have a, a decent conversation. I never mentioned music, nothing about it. Well, I, I was up there for two years and I continued to write music every night or work on songs. And two years in, I went to see John and he and another guy, the three of us were sitting in John's backyard. And these guys are good friends. They're both pilots and they were shooting the breeze about airplanes. And so finally he said, uh, Ken, what, what did you want to see me about? And I pulled out a cassette tape, just handed it to him. And he, he took it and he looked at it and said, uh, what's this? <laughs> I said, well, it's some songs that I've been working on and writing. And he said, well, I didn't know you, you play, you write, what do you do? I said, yeah, and I have just a very basic little recording studio at home or a little setup. And he said, well, you've been here two years. I didn't know, you know, you did this. I said, yeah, I was hired to keep people like me away from you. He actually had a very good laugh over that. He said, I don't have time to listen to it tonight, but I'm flying to Denver tomorrow and driving home. I will listen to it then. And I've learned that John was a man of his word and he came in the next night, and my heart was pounding like for 24 hours. But he came in, he had my tape in his hand, and he kind of shook it at me. He said, you wrote these? You did all the playing? You did this at home? I said, yes. He said, well, you can work here as long as you want, but if I were you, if this is what you want to do, go out and do it. He said, I like what you're writing. It's not mature enough yet. He said, you're on the right path. Uh, anytime you write something you want me to hear, bring it to me, send it to me, call me. He just totally left the door wide open. In fact, when I was in Vermont, it had been seven years since I'd seen John. He was playing in Plattsburgh, and I happened to be in the second row, and John just came out with his guitar, and he was just looking across the audience. He's singing his first or second song, and his eyes came across mine, and he went past a little bit, you know, his head kind of snapped back made eye contact and smiled. And I was like, you know, that just felt really nice. Something I'll never forget. So during uh, intermission, I had my driver's license and I asked for the head of security and gave it to him. He went back and must talk to John and then he waved me back. And he was so excited, you know, what are you doing here? You know, where are you living? What have you been doing? And it was kind of like old home week, you know, it was very nice. And there's other people backstage and, you know, he's, he's got a show to put on. So we didn't talk all that long, but while I was working for John, he stopped one morning and said he was running to LA to pick up some papers. I remember it was a Sunday morning because I thought some people go for a Sunday drive and some go for a Sunday fly. So about 45 minutes later, I watched John's Learjet take off from the Aspen airport and bank to the West and, and gone. That was my first real thought of, I think I'd like to fly. The conversation I had with him about my music was after that that point, watching him take off. So when I moved to Grand Junction, when I left Starwood Security, I started taking flight lessons. And that's, for me, where it all began, was watching John fly and then uh, taking lessons. So that's the beginning of aviation, I guess. So everything just sort of came together. Serendipity was your friend, I guess. So this was like the perfect setup to learn to fly. I was playing music five nights a week locally in Grand Junction. And my days were completely free. And uh, the hotel where I was for two and a half years financially took really good care of me. So I had the money to learn to fly at that time. 
I got my private license in 10 weeks, which is pretty quick. And I really enjoyed that learning process of flying. So I had to build some flight time, which I did, and you know, went on and got my commercial and instrument, and then soon after flight instructor. There was a, an economic downturn big time in Grand Junction in Western Colorado with the oil shale project bust in the early 80s. Exxon pulled out, and uh, they just figured out they it wasn't cost effective, so they bailed. Well, they brought in thousands of people, and now thousands of people are without a job, so the economy just really tanked for quite a while. Um, I had job opportunity of playing music in Phoenix, and I continued some flight training down there, became an instructor. Between the, the money in Scottsdale and the great weather, I was a very busy flight instructor, and continued my own training and education and became a, an airline transport pilot, which is not the job, it's it's the rating, you know, that will let you fly big stuff. I wanted to be back in Colorado, and after two years in the heat in, in Arizona, I did go back to run a flight school, but there was still no money there. So I was looking for flying jobs and music jobs, and I sent out a resume to United and Continental, and Continental called me. So I went to Houston for two years flying uh, Continental Express, brand-new Brasilias, and wound up in Vermont. I didn't want to be an airline pilot, and the time came that I needed to make a decision, either the corporate direction or the airline direction. So I went to Vermont. I had a flight opportunity there for uh, for instructing and for uh, flying packages at night, flying bank checks in Boston and whatnot. One thing led to another, and uh, I heard about Hill Associates and was instructed to to go introduce myself to Dave Hill, actually. So that started, and that's where we met. <laughs> yes, indeed. But now, Ken, I want to switch gears. Not long ago, for the better part of a year, you left the sky behind, and with your wife, Allie, you went on a little journey. <laughs> so in the throes of COVID, we went on a little vacation, October of 2020. As we were going to a restaurant, that their website said they were open. We actually left before they were going to open for the morning as we were going for a Sunday brunch. Uh, we actually got to the, the restaurant, and in fact, they were closed because of COVID. We wound up walking on a trail right across the street, which led to a, a monument. Right. So a closed restaurant and a monument for the Appalachian Trail that passed right by the diner led you and Alley to make a pretty momentous decision. I said, you know... Maybe we should hike this thing. Just add a little little grid in our lives. And we're not working right now. I mean, we have no major obligations. We had just gotten married, as a matter of fact. So we talked about it for a couple of days. And uh, come to find out, Allie had actually read a book on this about 20 years ago. I had walked a little bit of the trail in New Jersey. Uh, growing up, I was pretty active in 4-H. So at summer camps was near the trail. So we were both somewhat familiar with it. Well, we came home and started reading books and watching videos and learning what we could about it. And the more we watched and the more we kind of talked about it, thought about it, the more excited we became. We set a date of March 11th to begin this trail, 2021. And the days ticked down and we started on March 11th, 2021. So I know from reading Bill Bryson's Walk in the Woods that the trail runs from Georgia to Maine. So did you just start at one end and walk to the other? The trail runs from Amicalola Falls. Actually, that's an approach trail that begins there. 
eight miles from the approach trail, that's the famous arch. If you watch the show, A Walk in the Woods, that's actually the approach trail. Springer Mountain is the southern terminus of the trail and runs all the way north to Mount Katahdin in uh, north-central Maine. We were totally planning on beginning this uh, in Georgia, either Amicalola Falls or Springer Mountain. And about a week before we left, I woke up one morning with this epiphany of, why are we starting all the way south? Last year, because of COVID, uh, anticipated to be the busiest hiking year ever, where people were out of work, uh, they wanted to get into nature, away from other people with COVID and all. So there was 40 to 50 people starting every day between March 1st and May 1st. That two-month period is a very concentrated time for people to start the trail. So with COVID still being somewhat of a concern, I started thinking about reasons to begin someplace else. One of our goals was to complete a through hike, which means to hike all 2,193 miles within a 12-month period. You don't have to start in any particular place. You just need to accomplish the entire trail. So with that in mind, if we started somewhere else, we would still achieve that goal, the ability to complete the whole hike. So Roanoke, Virginia is closer to our home in West Virginia. So the plan was to rent a car, go to Roanoke, that's 700 miles north of the southern terminus, hike the whole northern section, and then go back to Roanoke and hike the last 710.5 miles. And that's that's what we did. But the, the reasons were to stay away from this bubble of people. The campgrounds wouldn't be as full. If we go into trail towns for resupply, they wouldn't be as full. So we'd we would stay ahead of this bubble primarily all the way north. We would have a longer time period because of the weather in, you know, north central Maine. This would allow us more time to get there. And then when we flip-flop, as it's called, back to our starting point in Roanoke and go south, then we'd be hiking through the, you know, the color seasons of the fall through the, the Smokies and, and so on. And again, not being the, the large masses of people on this journey. So, Ken, this was a serious undertaking, and with all due respect, you're not a kid. How did you prepare for a nine-month, 2,000-mile walk in the woods, given that neither one of you were regular season long-distance hikers? Truly, there is no way to prepare for the trip. I started out on the trail. I was 63, celebrated a birthday just before we completed. So when it completed, of course, I was 64. What we learned is this is not a trail, and I'll tell you more about that later. So Appalachian Trail is a blatant uh, falsehood. It is not a trail. Some of it's a trail. That's like saying, how you doing? Oh, it's all good. Yeah, some of it may be good, but it's not all good. Well, it's not all trail. There really is no way to prepare for the, the trail. The way to prepare for it is to get on it and start hiking. From the books that we read, from the videos we saw, and then once we started to experience the trail, I told Allie, you know, there's an awful lot that has not been written about this trail. And especially for, you know, someone of my age, I jokingly, very much jokingly say I'm a geezer. But I also think if you can hike 2,200 miles, uh, you're not all that much of a geezer. And now you're about to publish a book about the adventure. As I said, there's so much that is not written about what we experienced so I wanted to come from the perspective of a geezer here at 64 years old and 
tell people what worked for us and why it worked for us and how it worked to our benefit, you know, help others out there. We learned so much about the trail itself, about the people on the trail, what is working, hiking styles, kids, for instance, and kids, I will group them into 18 to 24. Evidently, their goal is to see how fast they can get from point A to point B. And routinely, what happens is they get to the end. Now, I'm not categorically saying everybody, but a large number of people get to the end and can't wait to finish it. It, To them, it's just been a race. And a lot of those people plan on coming back and doing it slower to enjoy it. Uh, Something happens beyond 40, and it's not speed. One of our biggest goals was to complete this and remain uninjured. Ken, let me ask you this. What was the most important lesson that you learned along the way? Some of it's hard to put into words. Society has conditioned me to live a certain way. You have a home. You have a vehicle. uh, Maybe a mortgage. You have a, a lawnmower. You have bicycles. You have skis. You have computers. You have stuff. We have so much stuff. And we lived out of backpacks for nine months with very little stuff. We carried a tent. We carried sleeping bags, sleeping pads. And we had some luxuries like a pillow. And I know when pretty much everyone goes to bed tonight and they lay down and put their head on a pillow, they don't think of that as a luxury. But if you don't have one for a while, sleeping on the ground in the woods, trust me, a pillow is a luxury. We took some comfort items and our packs were very heavy uh, in regards to the weight of most other packs. My pack ran between 42 and 48 pounds, and Allie's was, you know, about 10 pounds less than that, but she's also quite a bit smaller than I am. One of the things we learned is how little you really need to survive. And this wasn't like a POW camp. We survived well. It was enjoyable getting rid of all this stuff, sleeping outdoors, listening to the wind, get up in the middle of the night and look at stars when you're away from towns and light pollution, the uh, the clarity of the ponds and rivers and streams in New Hampshire and uh, Maine in particular, it was just incredible. Relying on each other every day and every night for everything that you do. These are some of the experiences that lead into other uh, emotions and reasons and feelings that it's just difficult to put into words. But the simplicity of life there, we actually miss it. I love and use and appreciate a lot of the tools that I have at home. Uh, Looking at you 710 miles away from here, driving distance, be able to see you face to face, you know, through a computer. Some of these things that technology have brought us are pretty cool. I'm not going to even say that they're great. Coming from someone who's just spent nine months in the woods, that was a large part of what we learned is, and this was actually a, a real reason to hike this in the first place, was to get away from all this. If you don't mind, let me ask a follow-up question. 
Why did you want to do the hike in the first place? I mean, when you describe standing at the monument next to the closed diner, it doesn't sound like you had an epiphany or some well-thought-out reason that was pushing you to do this. Uh, Some of my reasons were to put a reset on my own life. We're so immersed in technology around us all the time, and it's for a good life, for a simple life, it's not necessary So that reset for me was kind of to purge the daily being inundated with computers and TVs and satellite radio and and all these other things. And a real wake-up call was as soon as I got home from the trail, there were some things that I needed to take care of, such as health insurance and, you know, restart some utilities that we had turned off during that time. Well, it was no sooner that I went to log into an account, password's not correct. Well... I have ways to verify that password was correct last time I used it. And then you get on the phone and, you know, push one for this, push two for this. You know, do you want to speak with a representative? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Thank you. Goodbye. All these things that these new or they weren't new before I left, but returning now that I have these new frustrations in my life. I thought, you know what? Two weeks ago when we were on the trail, we had none of this. You pick up your cell phone. I need to send mom a text. Oop, no signal. No worries. Maybe later today. And that was the extent of our uh, use of of phones and technology really on the trail. So you and Allie hiked 2,200 miles over nine months. What was it like coming back and re-entering life? That's a great question. It's a little bit of a balancing act because things that we at home before we left, we did take for granted and went without for nine months. Now, not every night, because there were, you know, certainly nights that we spent in towns for showers and wash and resupply. So when I say nine months, that was the the entire journey and not every single night was in the woods. So, but being home and being able to turn on hot water, in order to do that on the trail, we're collecting water and then heating it and being very careful how much of that water we're using because it's going to be a process to go collect more water. So shocking as it may sound, some of the shock was to come back and realize that we can just turn a tap on and have hot water. We can go to this silver handle and pull it and there's cold milk. Try to find cold milk, you know, in the middle of the, the presidential range in New Hampshire. Good luck. Some of the shock is, uh, it's not even shock that you have learned it's probably more shocking that we did take so much for granted before the trip and coming back on how much more we appreciated the things simple things we had a larger pillow at night cold milk fresh cereal a banana going to the store and buying an avocado things that people do every day and don't think about it it was shocking for us being at friends homes once we returned that invited us to dinner and said, oh, help yourself in the fridge. And we'd open it up. And they have one of the largest non-commercial fridges and every square centimeter is stuffed. Stuff is falling out of the doors. And and we looked at each other and decided we don't ever want to do that again. Why do we need all this? Our freezer now is practically empty and it, it feels good. So shocking, when we came back, the smell of roads, rubber on the roads, things you don't think about, 
the smell of exhaust. And you will think about that if a extremely smoky truck, you know, goes by and it's burning oil. Oh, but otherwise, and I'm just talking about cars in great shape that go by and you can smell the exhaust. Uh, you can actually smell the dust off the side of the road. Our sense of smell definitely improved on the trail. And, and coming back, it's amazing how much more sensitive we are. That may go away, I don't know, but right off, off the bat. And even on the trail, a hiker would come by and you could smell them literally before they came to you and easily when they walked by. And we'd look at each other and say, day hiker, they smell like soap. And that's, it wasn't a slam at all, but you can tell. Somebody walked by, oh yeah, they're a through hiker. They haven't been in town in a week. <laughs> I love that. They smell like soap. So what final thoughts have you got for us? That I would say the trail is is truly a life-altering experience. And I think people may hear that, but you're not going to be able to grasp it until you do it. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.